Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Martin Arnold, the FT's Banking Editor. Joining me in the studio today are Owen Jelf, Global Head of Capital Markets at Accenture, Laura Noonan, our Investment Banking Correspondent, and Caroline Binham, our Financial Regulation Correspondent. Well, on the phone, we'll be talking to Jim Brunsden, our Brussels Correspondent. This week, we'll discuss the newly released details of a European Commission plan to create a capital markets union across the European Union to make it easier for businesses to access financial markets. We'll also look at why some countries, including the UK and India, are pushing foreign banks to set up separately capitalised subsidiaries. And finally, we'll discuss the British government's plan to sell £2 billion of shares in Lloyds Banking Group to retail investors next spring. Starting with the Capital Markets Union, Lord Hill in recent days has put uh, more flesh on the bones of his Capital Markets Union plan. He's the European Commissioner in charge of financial regulation. He's a Brit and he seems pretty determined to lift many of the burdens that are preventing particularly small businesses in Europe from getting the financing that they need and perhaps adjusting some of the imbalances of the European financial system where you know it's very bank reliant and the banks are still recovering from the financial crisis, unlike the US where they've got a much more thriving capital markets. Joining us here, as I mentioned, from Accenture is Owen Jelf. Owen, what have you made of the detail that Lord Hill has come out with in the last few days? as to how he's going to go about creating this very ambitious project. I think the proposals, the recommendations, all actually make a lot of sense. I think the ideas around uh, making it easier for smaller companies to uh, raise uh, money through simplifying the prospectus directive, for example, is a force for good, reducing costs, making it simpler. I think you know the points around um, having to focus on incentives for long-term infrastructure investment through modifying uh, things like Solvency 2 to enable the insurance companies to uh, lend, again, makes a lot of sense. Um, Changing I th- capital requirements for banks on securitization is, is a big part of... Uh, no, no, a- a- absolutely. I mean, if you compare to the US uh, capital markets where, so I think it was a trillion dollars has been raised in securitizations versus, um, you know, a fraction of that figure in the EU. Again, that seems a, you know, a force for good in terms of freeing up bank balance sheets so that, that uh, funding can be provided to uh, companies across the, uh, the European Union. Again, the whole idea behind this is to promote growth, increase employment and focus or channel investment to companies in some parts of Europe that have got some good ideas but need funding to really promote themselves. And they're too reliant on a banking system that is still is still limping along after the crisis. Absolutely. In some cases, that's absolutely true. So regulation, probably rightly after the financial crisis, has focused very much on stability. But at the end of the day, there's a balance to be struck between having a stable financial system and promoting growth. And yeah, I think many people would agree that the EU has to focus on growth over the coming years. You know, if you take, I think some of the countries, uh, more traditionally in say Western Europe, have had lower growth rates than what we've seen in other parts of the world. And I think that's something that we need to address. And this plan 
at least from our perspective, seems to contain many sensible proposals. Yeah, so boost securitisation, boost investment in infrastructure, harmonise insolvency laws, harmonise some of the tax laws, make it easier for companies to issue prospectuses. All sounds very sensible, very laudable goals. But bankers I speak to say, yes, but. And the but is, but hang on a second, you know, at the same time as they're doing this and Lord Hill is doing all of these things, you've got other regulation that's out there that's restricting what banks can do. They're increasing capital requirements. There are the things like the financial transactions tax, which is, you know, adding an extra burden and an extra restriction on the development of Europe's capital markets. I mean, what do you say to the criticism that there's too many contradictory messages coming at uh, the financial sector? Yeah, that's clearly a challenge. And um, one of the, I think, the most probably refreshing proposals that was laid out in the uh, action plan was a review of uh, all the, say, inconsistent regulation or just a fundamental review of the regulation that's hit the financial sector over the last seven years. And again, the idea behind that review will be actually to try and fix some of the things you're saying. So where there are inconsistencies, where there's something that doesn't perhaps make sense in the light of the overall goals, to try and fix that. And, you know, just coming back to you on your other point around, well, you know, how will it actually land overall? I mean, I understand, and it's set out in the the paper, there's a checkpoint review in 2017. And the way this has been structured is as a series of, I guess, incremental proposals, each one having an impact, but in aggregate, will make a big impact. And I think given that the plan has been broken down in that way, and there seems to be a big political will behind implementing it, progress will be made. I think it would probably be much harder to uh, have, say, a limited number of very, very large changes, probably always, always harder to do that. But the incremental approach, I think, should broadly be welcomed. Well, to perhaps pick up on that point about the political will, Jim, in Brussels, what are you picking up in the European Commission and the corridors of power in Brussels about uh, the momentum behind Lord Hill's plan? As far as momentum is concerned, the capital markets unions are kind of an odd project in a way, because if you contrast it with what the last European Commission was up to, where it had this swashbuckling legislative agenda, it was rewriting capital rules for banks, building new supervisory institutions for the financial system. Part of the message of the capital markets union is very much a kind of calming down and bedding down message. So part of the whole modus operandi of the capital markets union is to not be what's gone before. So Hill has been at absolute pains to avoid it looking like a big institution building project. He's very much put on the back burner any discussion about having uh, a single supervisor for capital markets in Europe, for example. And he, he very much, as Owen said, wants to present it as a series of incredibly reasonable, practical actions you can take to make life better for traders, funds, other actors in the financial system on the ground. So his starting point is basically to make the CMU as uncontroversial as humanly possible. In terms of the mood and the corridors of power, the issue Hill's going to run into is that not everyone sees it the same way. So he's going to have a push for more ambition from some quarters. So there's going to be parts of the European Parliament, for example, who are going to be very keen on having a, a single supervisor for capital markets, probably based in Frankfurt, and they'll be pushing for that. Unhelpfully for Hill, that idea was also endorsed in a paper during the summer that was signed by the leaders of all the main EU institutions, including his own boss, Jean 
Jean-Claude Juncker, the president of the Commission, and also the president of the European Central Bank. So there's going to be this pull to make the CMU more of a political institution building project. So he's going to have to deal with that. And the other problem he's going to have to deal with is resistance in some quarters to watering down some of the regulations that were adopted post the crisis. And just like Owen said, a big part of the CMU is going back and reviewing what was done almost in real time. I mean, this is going back and reviewing regulations which haven't even been fully implemented yet. They're just cooling on the statute book and basically trying to nip problems in the bud. And so he's going to come up with some resistance because some of the biggest political beasts in the European Parliament were the architects of these rules. And so um, he's going to have an interesting time there too. They still haven't finalised the Likkonen rules, you know, this idea of uh, separating off part of the investment banking activities from the rest of the banking system. System. And that's still sort of up in the air, really, isn't it, Jim? And, and, and bankers point to that and say, well, if you want us to give a boost to capital markets and to develop capital markets in Europe, you can't be at the same time putting in these extra burdens and forcing us to ring fence part of our investment banks. Exactly. And so that's handed a a kind of big lever, if you like, to the um, lobbyists out here for the banking industry, because they can now point to this discrepancy. You know, whereas Jonathan Hill's predecessor, Michel Barnier, the commissioner for financial services in the last mandate, France's commissioner, he was very clear who his antagonists were, if you like. You know, he'd do press conferences and stand there saying, I do not have a short memory. The industry has a short memory. We will never go through this again. He was very clear what his direction of travel was. But now there's this dual messaging where, on the one hand, Juncker can't quite let go, for example, of the financial transaction tax, because delivering that was part of a political bargain with the European Parliament. And they can't quite bring themselves to abandon this proposal for bank structure reform, because in part, governments want to be seen to be doing more on this issue still because of the bailouts during the crisis, and also because it's very popular in some quarters of the parliament. Perhaps I'll just bring Owen back in for a final question. Do you think your clients in the financial services sector, and the banks particularly, can see a bit of an opening here with this push for capital markets union, that they could perhaps get some of these more unappealing regulations unwound, or some of the things that they can see coming down the track, like the financial transactions tax, like the Lickin reforms, they can see this as a way to almost head those things off. Well, I think the sector, as I said, broadly will welcome the proposals in the CMU. I think inevitably there'll be uh, some attempts at pushback around some of the things that may be more disadvantageous for the industry. And I think in the end, a balance will be struck. But I mean, for sure, it is clearly an opportunity to uh, lobby and propose and to try and fix some of the things that they see as problematic. And as I said, I think many of the banks will obviously strongly welcome this because it gives them a vehicle to actually channel some of that frustration that they've observed in the last five years. Okay. Switching now to international banking regulation. Firstly, one of India's biggest banks is being forced to inject hundreds of millions of pounds to capitalise a new UK subsidiary that Bank of England has asked it to set up to house its retail banking activities. And at the same time, we've also reported that Standard Chartered is set to become the first big foreign bank in India to set up a separately capitalised subsidiary in the country. So to discuss why this is happening and whether it signals a balkanisation of financial regulation are Laura Noonan, investment banking correspondent, and Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent. First of all, Laura, tell us about the standard chartered move and why this is happening. Why are countries forcing these banks to set up more heavily regulated, heavily capitalised subsidiaries in the various markets they operate in? 
Well, I guess I would begin by saying India has always had a very particular set of regulations for the national banks versus for the international foreign banks. So India was one of those countries where it was very hard to actually grow your own network and to do business if you weren't one of the domestic players. So as well as basically encouraging these large foreign banks to set up a subsidiary which will have its own capital, having a subsidiary will also allow the banks to actually do more in India. So banks which didn't have their own subsidiaries previously, they were very constrained in terms of their opening of any branches in India. So now they're able to do more, but they also have to do more. So India does have rules on the lending. So you have to lend a specific amount of your book to certain sectors if you are going to have a subsidiary. So the Indian situation is slightly different to what we see more typically, which is basically the regulations being concerned on capital, which is what we see more in the West. So it may not be purely negative for Standard Chartered if they do go ahead with this plan to set up a subsidiary in India. But Caroline, maybe you can just talk about the broader picture here, which is one of concern by national regulators to make sure that they've got control of the activities in their individual countries of foreign banks in case one of these big multinational banks does get into trouble and there is then perhaps a transnational fight between regulators over the money that's left in that bank and who resolves that failed bank. Absolutely. So the question of subsidiarisation versus branches was really brought into relief during the financial crisis when Kaupthing, the Icelandic bank, went down. And particularly in the UK, you got a situation where the UK government was actually having to stand behind UK retail depositors in Kaupthing, even though it really was just a branch rather than a subsidiary. So what subsidiarisation does is essentially give regulators a chance to ring fence deposits because it essentially puts an electric fence around the treasury function in a particular jurisdiction. So you can understand why regulators, particularly in the UK and the US, are rather pro-subsidiarisation. And uh, the fact that they've forced the State Bank of India to become a subsidiary in this country, perhaps that is a bit of an indictment on how they view the Indian resolution regime. But There is an alternative worldview, and that is precisely, as Laura's alluded to, the fact that India is very pro-subsidiarisation as well. So whilst I'm sure they would be very loath to say this was the case, one might say that this is a bit of regulatory quid pro quo. A bit of tit-for-tat regulation. Okay, sticking with you, Caroline, on to our last item, which is the news this week. The UK government announcing that it's planning a retail offering of Lloyd's shares in the spring, at least £2 billion are going to be offered to ordinary investors. And a similar sized offering we hear is also being planned for institutional investors. And this will be the way for the government to exit, finally, the large stake that it took in Lloyd's during the financial crisis when it bailed it out, but also to discuss the prospects for Lloyd's and you know whether it's an attractive investment, particularly perhaps in light of some of the regulatory developments on the payment protection insurance mis-selling scandal, which has been so costly for all the UK banks, but particularly for Lloyd's. I think it's cost it more than £13 billion. And there's been some news on that as well. So can you just give us an update on how that's changed the outlook for Lloyd's and whether it's made it more of an investable proposition? Absolutely. So two big statements involving Lloyd's really in the last four days. First, there was the announcement by the Financial Conduct Authority on Friday that they were minded to put a two-year deadline on any outstanding payment protection insurance mis-selling claims that may still be out there. 
somewhat surprisingly years after this scandal first hit the headlines. So they're thinking about putting a two-year deadline, which would be 2018 by the time final rules come into play. The reason why that is particularly positive for Lloyds is that it is the lender that has put aside the most to face payment protection claims. They've put aside £13.4 billion sterling. And if you compare that to its nearest rival in those particular inglorious stakes, Barclays has put aside £6 billion. So we'll see when that news broke, Lloyds shares were nearly up 2% on Friday. So particularly in the context of George Osborne's announcement earlier this week about the sale of the remainder of the government's stake in Lloyds, that could be seen as a very positive announcement. Is there any sense he's doing this for the purpose of increasing the value that they get when they sell Lloyds? I think whilst it was an independent announcement by the FCA, there is no doubt that it will help the government with that remainder of its shares that it has to get off its books. The FCA has long mooted whether a deadline would be appropriate or not, and certainly it was something that the industry was pushing for. Why that's interesting is just because the noises out of the FCA were quite negative about the concept of a deadline. And indeed, the former chief executive, Martin Wheatley, had told the select committee that it probably wouldn't be appropriate, or at least that the banks hadn't made their case as to why a deadline would work. So in fact, Andrew Tyree, the chairman of the select committee, said on Friday that he did want to hear from the regulator as to why there'd been that change in tune. Caroline, thank you very much for uh, clarifying all of that. That's it for this week. All that's left to do is to thank Owen, Jim, Laura and Caroline for their contributions and to thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye.